0: Father, we have, we have sung words that we believe. You are our only hope, and we long for the day when you will make all things new. It is true that this light and momentary affliction cannot compare to the weight of glory that you have for us in the future. So we look with hope, we look with faith to the fulfillment of all your promises in your Son. So we're grateful this morning for the promises that you've given us. Help us to rest in them as we continue to labor, as we continue to wait, as we continue to suffer in this world. Thank you that you walk with us. Would you give us grace this morning as we listen to your word? Open our hearts, open our ears, speak words of life to us. And change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's often the case that to understand a story or even to understand your own life... It's important to pick up a little bit of the backstory. We all have one. And so often in the scriptures, there is a backstory that needs to be remembered for us to understand what's going on in the passage that we're looking at. And uh, Judges chapter nine, where we're going to be exploring this morning, is such a story. Sometimes there are locations in the world, in our country, Uh, or in the Bible, that have significance because of things that happened years before. I've been amazed, moving here from Texas, at how many places here have some kind of historical significance, New York being uh, so much longer in existence as a state of the Union than Texas, and I know nothing about any of that history. So I find myself to be unaware of the significance of the things that I'm looking at very often. Uh, And I don't want you to miss out on what we're looking at in the scriptures today. And so we're looking at Judges chapter 9, and everything is going to be focused on the place called Shechem. And Shechem has a history and a backstory that's important for us to recall. So we're going to consider briefly uh, this situation that unfolds at Shechem in Judges chapter 9, and we've got to remember the story of Joshua to understand the significance of Shechem at this moment. And so we need to consider Joshua and covenant unfaithfulness at Shechem. Joshua and covenant unfaithfulness at Shechem. What is going to unfold before us in Judges chapter 9 at Shechem, I'd like to give you kind of an analogy that maybe can help you understand the seriousness of what's going on. What happens in Judges chapter 9 would be like if a bill were introduced to Congress desiring to reinstitute slavery in this country, and that bill had been drafted at Gettysburg, the very place where President Lincoln so eloquently pleaded for freedom and equality for all in this country. That's the kind of thing that we're looking at in Judges chapter 9. So let me remind you of the story of Shechem in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24. So the book of Joshua concludes at Shechem. Joshua gathers all the people of Israel together at Shechem, and he makes a covenant with the people. Uh, And that covenant involves the people committing themselves to serve and obey Yahweh their God alone and swearing not to worship false gods at Shechem. Let me remind you of Joshua 24, 14 specifically. After the first 13 verses of Joshua reminding the people of all the good that God had done for them, all the way back to bringing them out of slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus, and all the way up through the conquest of the land that they had just experienced... He says Joshua 24:14 Now therefore fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Note that phrase, in sincerity and in faithfulness. It's going to pop up in our story in Judges chapter 9. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. And the rest of Joshua 24 tells how repeatedly the people of Israel swear To do that very thing, they swear to obey Yahweh alone and to put away their foreign gods and never worship them again. Well, we've been in the book of Judges for a little while, and it's pretty clear they didn't keep their word. And we see how bad things are when we get to Judges chapter 9 and we return to this site, this location called Shechem. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 9. Remind you of where we were last week. We finished up the life of Gideon, or Jerubbaal, as his nickname came to be. And if you remember, after he had conquered the Midianites, after God had used him to conquer the Midianites, to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of Midian, they asked him to rule over them. They wanted him to rule over him because they had given him credit for delivering them from the hand of Midian. And if you remember, he said, No, I won't rule over you. My son won't rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you. But then everything that unfolds after that is him very much ruling over the people. He acted very much like a king. Not an Israelite king, but a Canaanite king. And so that's what we see in the rest of Gideon's life. He accumulated wealth for himself. He made an object of worship that the people of Israel went after. And then he accumulated many wives for himself and had 70 sons. And then he also took a concubine, a secondary kind of wife, and bore a son with her. And his name was Abimelech, or Abimelech if you like. And if you remember from last week's two Hebrew words, Abi, which means my father, and Melech, which means king, and smushed together, his name means my father is king. And that tells us a little bit about what Gideon really thought about himself. Uh, he viewed himself very much as a king over Israel, it seems. So he names his son Abimelech, and then he dies. And the people of Israel abandon worshiping his ephod that he had constructed, and they go back to worshiping the Baals, the Canaanite storm gods. And then we get to see Gideon's legacy in chapter 9. It's a long story, but I would like to read it all in full and get the whole thing in front of us. So 57 verses, strap in and pay close attention. Judges chapter 9. Now, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of baal Berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim, and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit, and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore... If you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubal and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you, and risked his life, and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day, and have killed his sons, seventy men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Bethmelo and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Bethmelo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Baer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech, And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal, and is not Zevil his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zevil, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal the son of Ebed and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do." So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zevil, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zevil said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zevul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zevil drove out Gaal and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt." When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El-Berith. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Salmon, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebetz and encamped against Thebetz and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it And shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubba. Long story. Lots going on. Let's pick out some of the details as we press on through. The passage opens describing how Abimelech, my father is king, becomes king. Verses 1 through 6. Abimelech, my father is king, becomes king. He approaches his mother and appeals to her family. And that's where we start to see that there's some kind of relational divide in the city of Shechem. If you remember back to the story of Joshua, and you might have to kind of reread through that to pick this up, but you won't find any battles at Shechem in the book of Joshua. And yet, you see the people of Israel obviously settling and doing business in Shechem. And so it seems like what we have in Shechem is a city that is still largely run by the Canaanites. But Israelites have settled in with them and very much mixed with them. And so the leaders of Shechem here are related to this concubine that Gideon, or Jerubbaal, as he's called throughout this chapter, married or took as a concubine. And so it seems like we're to conclude that she, in fact, is a Canaanite, not an Israelite. And these leaders that are related to her are all Canaanites. And so Abimelech comes, and he basically appeals to them and says, you know, those Israelite sons of Jerubbaal, all of his wives were probably Israelite wives, and so his 70 sons were Israelites. And he makes the case that, you know, wouldn't it be better for you if I ruled over you? Because I'm related to you, and they're not." And we see that Abimelech is kind of appealing to his Canaanite side, if you will. And he's basically saying, you know, I'm really qualified to rule over you people because I'm related to you. This might be the very origin of nepotism, I don't know. But it's definitely a strange case when you think about it. He doesn't appeal to his character qualities. He doesn't appeal to his experience or any kind of other qualifications. Simply says, I'm your relative, Don't I qualify to rule over you? And they say, yeah, you do. You look like a good candidate to me. And so they make him ruler over over them. But first, they fund his campaign, if you will. He's got to eliminate his opponents. And he doesn't defeat them in debate, of course. He slaughters them. He takes money from the temple, the pagan temple of Baal Barif, which is the god that we were told at the end of chapter 8 that the people of Israel had been worshiping. And so whether the people are Canaanites or Israelites in Shechem, they are all worshiping this Canaanite god called Baal Berith. And so from his temple, from his temple treasury, we get the money that funds Abimelech's campaign where he hires a bunch of people. Reckless fellows, worthless fellows, the narrator calls them, who will go help him slaughter the 70 sons of Jerubbaal. And he says in verse uh, 5 that he kills them all on one stone. What's probably being depicted there is that there's this large stone mass, and basically Jerubbaal, uh, Abimelech, and his worthless fellows Capture the 70 sons of Jerubbaal, bind them, tie their hands up behind their back, line them up, bring them all one at a time to this stone and cut their heads off or kill them with a sword. It's probably what's going on. And so they're all slain on this one stone that becomes significant later in the story. So he kills all of them but one. Jotham escapes. Jotham is the youngest. And like Abimelech, his name has significance. The meaning of Jotham's name has significance. Jotham is a Hebrew name that means Yahweh has perfect integrity. Some of your study Bible notes or commentaries might say something like his name means Yahweh is perfect. And the implication is, in the, the idea of integrity is very much at play here. Yahweh has complete, perfect integrity, and that's going to show up in this passage in the form of God's justice, so that the message of this story comes out, and it's very much not about this Canaanite mess that's going on. The story is actually about God and His justice. So that we see in this story the perfect integrity of God's justice. And Jotham's name even hints at that significance in this story. And so what we see is Jotham hides himself. He escapes. He's not caught and killed. And then in verses 7 to 15, after Abimelech has been crowned king over the leaders of Shechem, and we'll come back to talk about that in just a bit, but he's made king... And then the word gets out, and Jotham hears about it in his hiding place. And so he comes back to Shechem, and he offers a prophetic parable. Jotham gives a prophetic parable. Now, I'm referring to this as a parable. And basically, you're probably familiar with parables primarily from Jesus' teaching. But Jesus didn't invent the parable. He just used it with perfect excellence. Um, And quite often. But this, in fact, is the first parable in the Bible. There are several in the Old Testament, but here's your Bible trivia buffs. The first parable in Scripture is right here in Judges chapter 9. Now, many folks will refer to this as a fable. And I take a fable to be a subset of a parable. So what's a parable? A parable is basically a figure of speech that makes a comparison. It basically speaks of certain things in symbolism that have a significance in reality that we're talking about. And so it's a kind of comparison. Sometimes that can be a single statement where certain features of the statement have symbolic significance to reality. And other times, like this case, it's a long story. And you know this from Jesus' parables. Long story where certain characters and certain features of the story have spiritual, symbolic significance in the real world. And so that comparison is made to help us. A fable is like that, but it specifically features animals or plant life who are being personified to symbolize certain people in real history. And so that's what Jotham has given us here, a prophetic parable. The parable's got two real simple points, I think, that we draw out. When you read a parable that's a story, you kind of have to pay attention and think, okay, what's the real focus of the story, and what's just uh, window dressing? Just kind of a feature of the story that remains in the background. And the interpretation of the parable is what gives you that key. And so we see this parable that features these trees, where all the trees come and they want to make somebody king over themselves. The first situation sees them picking on three specific kinds of trees, the olive tree, the fig tree... And the vine, and they asked them to rule over them. And I think what Jotham is getting at here with this picture is the desire among the people for a king and what it's based on. And so the first thing that this parable teaches us in that cluster of the first three kinds of trees is that he's talking about the men of Shechem. So the parable says something about the men of Shechem. What does it speak to? It conveys that they have the wrong criteria for kingship in mind. Why do they appeal to the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine, first of all, to become king over them? Because they're looking at the good product that each of the trees produces or the vine produces. They're, they're seeing the olive tree producing olive oil or olives that can be used for olive oil, and that seems like a good product, a good thing that the tree makes. And then when the tree refuses to be king over them, they go to the fig tree, which produces a nice fig that's kind of a dessert fruit, a sweet thing that can be produced. And they think, oh, that would make a good king. Or then they go to the vine, which obviously produces wine, which everybody loves to enjoy. And they say, you'd make a good king. And the point, I think, is the same thing that we see later in the larger, broader people of Israel when they're looking for a king and they want to make Saul their king. They're entirely focused on external criteria. And it seems that this little group of Shechemites have the same problem. When they want a king, they're looking for externals only. And so the people have the wrong criteria of kingship, and that will carry on forward into the days of Samuel and Saul. And so that's the first thing the parable tells us. The men of Shechem have the wrong criteria for kingship. But the parable's really focused on the bramble. And the bramble, of course, symbolizes Abimelech. And what it tells us about Abimelech is that he has the wrong character for kingship. He's all wrong for the job, and yet he gets the job. Notice the way that he answers them in verse 15 in the parable. The bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, If you really want me to be king over you, if you're really asking me to be king over you, then get down here and take refuge in my shade. Now if you could put that picture up, Brooke, let you see an artist's rendering of what this might look like. Just to get your imagination working here. Imagine these tall cedar trees talking to a little bitty teeny tiny Bramble. And And he says, get down under my shade. Think about what a cedar tree would have to do to get down there. You have to bend all the way over, flatten out, and ultimately break, snap into twigs to get down there. But then notice, too, is that thing going to provide any shade? Really? I mean, this particular artist's rendering shows that it's got these little bitty teeny tiny leaves. But most of these brambles, these kind of thorn bushes, don't even have any leaves. They're kind of winding vines that have thorns, but all these gaps. The sun's just going to go straight through that. So this thing doesn't have any shade to really offer them. And yet, he says, if you really want me to be king, then get down here. So for the people to make him king, they really are going to have to abase themselves. They're going to have to put themselves down to the lowest point. And ultimately, they're going to put themselves in harm's way. They're going to destroy themselves. Think about, too, if they actually did it. If they ended up crawling underneath that bramble somehow, they're going to get pricked. That's what a bramble does. It's got thorns all through it. So if you get close enough to it, you're probably going to get hurt. And that's exactly what unfolds. So that's the prophetic picture, the parabolic image. Let's see what Jotham's interpretation tells us about the significance of it specifically. Verses 16 to 21. Notice notice the way he begins his interpretation in verse 16. He's addressing the people, the leaders of Shechem. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity, that is the same Hebrew phrase that we saw in Joshua 24, 14. Good faith and integrity, or truth and sincerity, or faithfulness and integrity, that word integrity is the word that pops up in Jotham's name. And so there's all of these ties coming together here. But the good faith, the faithfulness, and the integrity that Jotham is commenting on is faithfulness and integrity with respect to Gideon and his family. And so he poses the question, when you made Abimelech king, were you doing the right thing? Were you doing the thing that would honor the man that God used to deliver you from the Midianites and his family. Except that Jotham doesn't really put it that way. Jotham seems to have to share the opinion of the general populace that Gideon was responsible. He gives his father credit, again, for delivering them from the hand of Midian. He doesn't say whom God used to deliver you from the hand of Midian. He just says, my father delivered you from the hand of Midian. So he gives his father a little bit too much credit here. But nevertheless, because of the good that God did through Gideon for the people of Israel, they shouldn't have treated him like this. And they know that. Now what we see here is these leaders of Shechem are probably Canaanites that are living with the people of Israel But the reality is when Gideon delivered, when God used Gideon to deliver the people from the hand of Midian, it would have benefited the Canaanites living in the land too. The Canaanites living in Shechem were being plundered just as much as the Israelites were. They all lived together, and the Midianites were coming in and stealing all of their crops. They weren't making a distinction between, these are Israelites, we want to get their stuff, but not the people who are living in Shechem who are Canaanites. And so Gideon actually did this good thing, or God used him to do this good thing. And so their actions don't show loyalty to Gideon and his family at all. And so Jotham pushes home the point in verse 20. And so he's kind of acknowledging that you know you didn't do the right thing. You know this doesn't bring honor to Gideon and his family. You killed his family. Obviously, that's not a good thing. And so he presses the point of the parable home in verse 20. But if not, if you didn't, deal well with Gideon and his family. Let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. So he basically says, I hope y'all kill each other because of this. That's essentially what he's saying. And at the end of the story, we learn that this is truly a curse from Jotham. It's a prophetic curse from Jotham. He curses them and essentially says, I hope you kill each other. And that is what unfolds. So the rest of the passage, verses 22 to 49 particularly, unfolds the fulfillment of this prophetic parable. So we first see the, we first, see the first part of the fulfillment in verses 22 to 49 where we see the fire coming out from the bramble. The fire coming out from the bramble. I'll just summarize some of the pieces of the story. But we need to talk about verses 22 and 23 a little bit to get clear on some things. First of all, verse 22, the writer, the narrator says, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. There's a couple of things to think about here. One, what does he mean by ruled over? The narrator can't quite bring himself to use the language of kingship here. The narrator doesn't use the normal verb that would mean to reign over or to sit on the throne over them. He uses a lesser word that could mean like govern or oversee. He uses a kind of a weaker term to communicate what he thinks about Abimelech. And ultimately, we're getting the divine perspective on what Abimelech is doing. He's not a proper king in any sense of the word, uh, regardless of what the people of Shechem think. But then the narrator says he ruled over Israel For three years. And that should be a little bit surprising to us. Because up to this point, it seems like this is a very localized reality that the leaders of Shechem, this one city, have made him ruler over them. So why does he say he ruled over Israel? And there's several ways to think about this and to try to understand. It could be the case that over the course of these three years, that Abimelech kind of expanded his influence and ultimately did carry some authority over the whole nation. Or it seems more likely to me that when we see the word Israel in the Bible, oftentimes the context makes it very clear that the narrator is referring to a limited group of people, a smaller group than the whole nation. Even the phrase, all Israel, is used in that limited way many times. And context makes that really clear. And this may be one of those occasions. But there is a point to using the term Israel. Because up to this point, we would think, okay, he's ruling over the Shechemites, who are largely, it seems, Canaanites. And we're going to get some confirmation of that in just a moment. So, is he really ruling over Israel, or is he really ruling over the Canaanite contingent within Israel? The narrator wants us to know that, yes, in fact, even though he initiates this with his family ties to the Canaanites, he exerts his power over the people of Israel living in this region also. He may also be implying that this is the kind of thing going, out th- going on throughout the whole nation, because the whole nation of Israel during this period is broken and idolatrous and essentially acting like the Canaanites. And the narrator may be hinting toward that kind of idea, by giving us this picture. But that's a little bit besides the point. Verse 23 is the most important point. Verse 23 and verse 24 suddenly introduce God into this story. If we didn't have these two verses and the two verses that conclude the story, we would probably assume that God was not involved in any way we would probably assume that God had essentially kind of taken his hands off the people and let them spin out of control. I think that would be a natural assumption, but the narrator says that's not what's going on at all. God is involved in this, and he's involved in a very particular way. I wonder how comfortable you are with the way this is worded. Verse 23, And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So what's going on here? Well, there's lots of ways to think about this. God sent an evil spirit. So, what does He mean by an evil spirit? He could mean what we would think of as a demon. An evil spirit is a demon. Now, for God to send an evil spirit shouldn't give us much trouble we know the rest of our Bibles, because God is sovereign over Satan and his forces. They are at his disposal to accomplish his good purposes. So it shouldn't bother us that God can use something that is evil to accomplish good. He does it all the time. And our Bible teaches us in different ways and in different places that everything that Satan does in this world is under God's rule. Satan is on a leash, and he never, never can break free from that leash. I hope you know that. I hope you have that as a part of your theology the Bible teaches it really clearly. Satan is not equal with God in any sense. as an opposing power to God. He is under God's rule. And so if this is an evil spirit in the sense of a demon or a morally evil spirit, we still don't credit God with the evil in any way whatsoever. And the way that I think about this is that God is so good. God is so good that He can take what is truly bad And use it for good. And he does that all the time. So that could be what's going on. But there's another couple of ways to think about it. One way is to think that this is not... We shouldn't think of the word evil in the moral sense. The Hebrew word that's used here often means what we would say bad. Like when something bad happens in the world uh, without any moral implications. It's a bad thing when my car breaks down. There's not any moral evil to that. Well, the Hebrew would use the same word. Um, And so it could be that this is a spirit, as in an angel, an angelic being, that is used to do some harm. So we could translate it a harmful spirit, a spirit that brings harm. Now, I hope that's not problematic for you, because if you read through your Bible, you will remember that God sent angels to kill people at times. I remember a story where God sent uh, one angel to kill 120,000 armed men. God uses angels to execute his judgment in history, repeatedly. I hope you're okay with that. I hope that's a part of your angelology, that you recognize angels are not these nice, cuddly creatures. They are soldiers, and they do God's bidding, which includes bringing wrath and judgment against the wicked, so that very well could be what's going on here. The, the result of God sending this spirit is that the people of Shechem turn on Abimelech. They turn against him. Why do they do that? Because God sent an angelic being, a demonic force, to influence them. Or yet one more way. I'll give you a third one, just for kicks and grins. The word spirit doesn't have to refer to a personal entity, right? We use it all the time. We can say somebody's got a bad spirit, and we mean they have a bad attitude. The Hebrew uses the term that way, too, sometimes. So it could be that what we have here is God sent an evil attitude between the two of them. That is to say that God caused the Shechemites to turn against Abimelech. He caused them to sour in their faith in him. He caused them to suddenly change their minds about whether he was worth following or not. God did that. God gets credit for that. I leave it to you to decide what you think about that. Either way, the Bible teaches all of those things at different times. God is, the ultimate point is that God is doing this. That's the big point of this story, is that God is responsible for this change. God is the one who brings it about in order to bring judgment against Abimelech and against the Shechemites for this particular sin. And so the punishment fits the crime in this particular case. And so the narrator steps in to tell us that. And I would submit to you that if we didn't have these verses, we would not know that. We would not assume that. We would not believe that. We would simply... Or, or put yourself in, those, in their sandals. If you were actually watching it unfold, and you saw how the Shechemite leaders for three years had been following Abimelech's rules, submitting to him, doing what he wanted them to do, paying tribute to him, and then suddenly they just changed their minds and suddenly said, we don't like him anymore. We don't want to follow him anymore. That happens all the time in the world, right? The people who are under a ruler get tired of his rule after a few years and they want to kick him out of office. It happens all the time. And if we didn't know, if we didn't have some theological statements behind that, we would just assume that they just changed their mind. People are flippant. They do it all the time. We would not necessarily conclude that God did something there. But here, the narrator makes sure that we don't miss the point. And the lesson for us will be in that very reality that God is bringing judgment on the wicked in the unfolding of history. We'll come back to to that point at the end of our time. So that's the beginning of all of this. The instigator of the fire coming out from the bramble is not Abimelech, it is God. God causes this. So He causes this conflict to come, and He introduces this new figure, Ga'al comes into this story, moves into Shechem, and notice that he appeals to the leaders of Shechem on the same exact logic that Abimelech did. He comes in and he says, I'm your relative, I deserve to rule over you. But he's got a better pedigree than Abimelech does. Abimelech is a half-breed, so to speak. He's half Shechemite, half Canaanite, and half Israelite. But Gaal is a pure blood. He's a full-blooded Canaanite. And he tells them in a drunken stupor in this party that's going on in verse 28, he tells them to serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. And by saying that, he's indicating, I'm descended from Hamor, the Shechemite. Hamor, the father of Shechem. If you were to look in Genesis 33 and Genesis 34, you would find Hamor was a Hivite. And the Hivites are one of those Canaanite peoples that the people of Israel were supposed to drive out and devote to destruction when they came into the land. And so what this indicates to us is that the people of Shechem, the leaders at least, are all related to Hamor. They're all connected by blood relation to the Hivites. And so these people are actually Hivites. And Gaal says, I've got a better pedigree than Abimelech. I deserve to rule over you. And they say, that sounds good. Let's switch our allegiance. And so then he wants to boast and set up his army and try to attack Abimelech and kind of take over, and he begins that process. But Zebul is in the city, and he hears all of this, and he's loyal to Abimelech, and so he goes out and tattles, and he gets Abimelech ready to come in and and kind of step over the line and initiate this battle with Gaal before he can rally his troops. And so he does, and then Zevil's there as kind of a little spy, um, kind of instigating this whole thing. He convinces Ga'al that the people coming down from the mountains are not really people. It's just the shadows. Don't worry about them. And he kind of stalls to give time for Abimelech's three troops to move in. And then when Ga'al sees all that's coming, and, and yeah, those are people, those are definitely people, Zevil says, yep. They sure are. Now, go get them. Go fight with them. And that's exactly what Abimelech wants. He wants them to come out because he's got a superior force. So they fight, he, and Abimelech wins the day. So it seems like the fire coming out from the bramble is happening uh, really, really smoothly. Abimelech wins. He drives out Gaal from the city of Shechem. Uh, actually, Zevil gets credit for that, interestingly enough. They're, Gaal is not killed, he just disappears from the scene. He and his men, they're gone. But then we start seeing some of the terrible things in Abimelech's character. On the next day, so verse 42, on the following day, the people went out into the field and Abimelech was told. The way this is worded, it seems like the people are not coming out to the field like for battle. Their leader is gone. And so they're just kind of coming, back, coming out in the field to do work. They're just coming out to go back to business as usual. Now that their leader has been routed, they've got no one to follow. And so they think, well, we should just go out, the battle's over. Abimelech finds out about it, and then he brings in his force and slaughters them out in the field. Chases them down and slaughters them and rallies the rest of them, the remnant of them, into the city. And they take refuge into the tower of Shechem. And the Tower of Shechem is a part of the temple complex, if you will, of this god who is referred to as el Barith at the end of verse 46. Probably the same figure that was referred to as baal Barith earlier. Won't elaborate on that much here. But they've huddled together in the tower, and Abimelech uh, takes his position out on Mount Zalmon. Mount Zalmon, some of you may be interested to know, means shadow mountain. Uh, and he, it's a mountain of darkness and shadows, and that's where Abimelech hangs out. Might be some symbolic significance there. But anyway, he huddles there and prepares for another assault. He goes in, and he crowds around the tower, gets his men to bring kindling, and sets the tower on fire, and burns the people to death in the tower. Incidentally, and unintentionally, he ends up destroying the temple of Elbari. So ironically, he ends up destroying a temple of Baal just like his father did back in the day. Uh, But he also slaughters 1,000 men and women who were huddled in there together. So it is that fire has come out from the bramble. Well, Jotham's parable didn't end there, or the interpretation of the parable at least didn't end there. He also said fire would come out from the leaders of Shechem, and so there's fire also for the bramble. And if you think about the imagery of the parable, if the bramble, which is a a thorn bush that's really dry and has a tendency out in the desert or the wilderness in the Middle East to spontaneously combust when it gets too hot, if it's near a forest, it could catch the forest on fire, but if it catches the forest on fire, then it too will be burned up. And that's probably where Jotham's interpretation is going here. So we see fire for the bramble coming in verses 50 to 57. We don't know why. Why does he go against the city of Tibet, A city that's nearby. Maybe they were in league with Shechem. We don't know. Maybe he's just gone crazy and wants to kill some more people. That's quite possible. But he does. And they try the same thing. They go huddle in the tower. But this time, they climb up to the roof of the tower and one woman among them just happened to be grinding wheat at the mill, and she decided to take her kitchen utensils up to the roof with her. While we're waiting to be destroyed, might as well get some kitchen work done if I can. So she happens to carry this kitchen utensil up, and she's got this millstone. So you got two millstones, usually one of them you grind on top of the other one so it crushes out the grain, and it's heavy. The top one is real heavy. So Abimelech decides, well, they're in the tower, I'll just try the same thing again. And so he goes up to the tower, brings wood, starts, begins to try to start the fire, and this woman kind of looks over, sees what he's doing, and she's like, huh, this is heavy. And she reaches over, and Abimelech looks up, sees the woman, sees the stone, and then... Splat. His head is crushed, but he's not killed instantly. And so he asks his armor-bearer to run him through so that no one will know that a woman killed me. But of course... We all know, we read the story, right? <laughs> but not only that, this event is mentioned again in Scripture. Second Samuel eleven twenty one. King David looks back and remembers how Abimelech, when he got too close to the tower, got his head crushed by a woman, specifically. So, sorry, Abimelech, your strategy didn't work. You have a shameful reputation from now until eternity. And so it is that Abimelech died. And notice in verse 55 that when he dies, the people of Israel who had been following him just went home. They just packed up and went home. They had been fighting in this war. It's almost like they wake up from a drunken stupor. And they just wake up from this daze. And they're like, oh, what are we even doing? Why do we need to hurt these people? Let's just, let's just go home. And so they do And then the narrator steps back in to make sure that in all of the drama and all of the intrigue, we haven't missed the point. Verse 56 and 57. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. That is where we find the message of this text for us Today, We've seen a picture here of God's perfect justice. And so to conclude, I'd like to make three points about that, about God's perfect justice to finish up our time. First of all, and what we're seeing in this passage, God executes limited judgment during this age. God executes limited judgment during this age. Romans 118 teaches us this. Romans 1.18, Paul says, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth." Now, the English Standard Version and most of our Bible translations don't bring out the force of the present tense here in the verb revealed. Some do, but Paul is saying the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Against all ungodliness, that is to say, God is pouring out His wrath all the time in this world. We see an example of it in this story, but Paul wants us to know in Romans one that that is what is going on throughout history. God is always pouring out His wrath in the events that unfold in history. Psalm seven eleven gives us a picture of God that I don't think we talk about very much. Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Is that an aspect of the way that you think about God? The God that you worship, the God that you love, and the God that loves you. Do you have a place in your thinking about Him that recognizes that He is angry every day? And He reveals that anger. He pours it out. He expresses it in the events of history. Now, having said that, it's important for us to recognize that as we live and breathe, And as we watch the events of our own lives and the lives of the people around our world in history, it is impossible for us to discern certainly when or how this is happening. Some people, some preachers and teachers and writers, are very quick to point to a tsunami or a tornado that destroys a village and kills many people As an evidence of God's judgment against those people for a specific sin in their community. We have no authority to say things like that. We have no authority to express that kind of confidence to say that this event is God's judgment against these people for this sin. We have no way to discern that with any authority or any clarity. So we need to be very hesitant about that kind of thing. Timothy Keller says, we know it is happening that God is pouring out His judgment in history. We know it is happening, but we can never point to any one event and say, God is judging you for this particular sin you have committed. You need to be very cautious about drawing those kinds of conclusions. Sometimes God's judgment in history takes the form of fire and brimstone from the sky. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes God's judgment in history takes the form of one nation's military invading and conquering another nation. Think of Assyria and the northern kingdom Israel, or Babylon versus the southern kingdom Judah, or Persia versus Babylon. And sometimes God's judgment in history takes the form of people choosing for themselves a violent idiot to rule over them, who leads them into civil war before having his head bashed in by an anonymous woman's kitchen utensil. (laughs) If we were watching these events unfold without the benefit of prophetic, spirit-inspired, authoritative interpretation of the events, we would not naturally assume or we could not absolutely conclude with certainty that God was bringing judgment in these events. The only reason we know for sure that's what's happening is because the inspired narrator of Scripture has told us so. He has the authority. You and I do not have that kind of authority. So we need to be careful about our pronouncements in this case. So that's the first thing that we can learn from this passage. We see God's judgment unfolding in history, but it is limited. It's always tempered by God's mercy. You see, this this event in Judges 9 was God executing judgment on Abimelech and the men of Shechem for specific sins. God brought judgment against Abimelech for killing his 70 brothers, and God brought judgment against the men of Shechem for supporting him and encouraging him in killing his 70 brothers. God was not bringing judgment on them for all of their sins that they had ever committed. That is still to come for these men. They will face judgment. And so the second point we can make this morning about God's perfect justice is God's pro- God promises to execute complete final judgment on the last day. This too is part of the gospel that we preach, the gospel we must believe. Romans chapter 2 verses 15 and 16 All of these points are drawn from Romans. It might be because I'm in Romans and ABF. But there's good connections here. Romans 2, 15 and 16, Paul says, they, that is Gentiles who don't have a law or a written revelation of what is sinful and what is not sinful, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Is that a part of the good news that you preach? Is that a part of the good news that you share with your neighbor? Is that a part of the good news that you believe? Do you see it as good news that God will execute final judgment on the last day? That He will make all things right? That He will be perfect in His judgment. And He will judge sin perfectly, not too extremely or too harshly, and not too little. Everyone will receive exactly, meticulously, calculatedly what they deserve for what they have done. Is that good news to you? It's a part of Paul's gospel that God will bring judgment on the last day through Jesus Christ. In fact... God raised Jesus from the dead to put the world on notice that judgment day is coming. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Paul is preaching there and he says, "...the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent." because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. And of course, He's talking about Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus shows us that this man, this great King, Jesus, will execute final judgment and set all things right. But there's one more point we must make in order for this to be really good news. For believers, for Christians, for followers of Jesus, God's justice has already been satisfied. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Do you know what a propitiation is? means to propitiate. Is that helpful? (laughs) It means to appease, to placate. It means to make someone who was angry with you no longer angry with you. A propitiation specifically takes away the wrath of God. And so for the believer in Jesus, God is no longer angry with you. He will never be angry with you again because His justice has been satisfied in your case. Rejoice in that. Celebrate in that. It is by His blood. God put Him forward. God sent His Son to be this propitiation by His blood. What does that mean? Jesus sacrificed His own life in the sense of an Old Testament sacrifice. He gave up His life in the place of your life. He died so that you don't have to die. He died even though He doesn't deserve to die, but you do. And the way that you benefit from that event, the way that you receive that event, is by trusting Him, by believing in what He's done for you. The Old Testament sacrifices, when the animal died and was burned up, the smoke rose to heaven, and the text tells us that it was a pleasing aroma to God, meaning it smelled really good. So much so that he was no longer angry with the person who had offered that animal sacrifice. And those animal sacrifices were only good for individual, specific, particular sins. But here, Jesus has offered himself once for all so that all sins could be forgiven. Carrying on there in verse 25 of Romans 3, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. He didn't punish Abimelech to the level that Abimelech deserved to be punished. He didn't didn't punish the men of Shechem to the extent that they deserved to be punished. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God's perfect justice is on display in the death of His Son so that He remains righteous. He doesn't forgive your sins just because He's a nice guy. He doesn't forgive your sins and just let them go. All sin must be punished for God to be righteous. And so it is that the person who believes in Jesus doesn't get off scot-free. The punishment has been paid. Totally. Completely. Your account is clear. And you will never accumulate any more debt before God. Revel in that. God is just, and that's a good thing for you. And God has chosen freely by His grace to satisfy His own justice on your account in the death of His own Son. So, when we think of God, we need to have a place in our thinking, in our worship even, for Him as the just God who punishes sin. And it's not something we need to speak about flippantly or lightly. But it is something that is a reason God deserves our worship. So let's pray to this God who has chosen to forgive us by His grace. Father, thank You for this awful story. So much blood, so much death, so much sin on display. But I'm so grateful that you've shown us truly and accurately and faithfully what we know to be true anyway from human experience, that human beings are awful. We do terrible things. We're motivated with terrible motives. And in all of it, you are involved. And you powerfully work good even through atrocities. Thank You for giving us a glimpse of that in Your Scripture, that we can go to this history, we can go to this prophetic revelation that teaches us about You and teaches us about our world, teaches us about ourselves. And we can know for certain that You are faithful and You will accomplish Your perfect justice in this world. Call us up out of ourselves and help us to submit to Your righteousness by trusting in Your Son. Thank you for loving us in such a way that you satisfied your own justice. You don't take a pound of flesh from us to satisfy your justice. You took it all from Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.